Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, my survivor friends. This is Chris. I'm chiming in here in the beginning to let you know that this episode references people taking their own lives. And hopefully this is not triggering for those of you who have been impacted by one of these tragedies. I know my life has been touched in this way. So I wanted to give you a chance to opt out now if it's in your best interest. And I sincerely try to do no harm where it can be avoided. So enjoy the show. After the Apocalypse, a pandemic survival story, season three, episode seven, the chaos outside the walls. Two more suicides. The small electric lamp cast a dull industrial patch of light across the desk plotter where Mags worked on paperwork. The desk was cluttered. She was very tired. She lifted her hands and rubbed her tired eyes with bald fists. She was feeling worn out and knew she should probably get some sleep. Two more suicides this week. Gregory Gant hanged himself from the storage rack in the warehouse with a jumper gable. Deborah Metcalf somehow managed to suffocate herself with a plastic bag. Mags couldn't shake the image out of her head. She couldn't unsee the lifeless eyes, the extinguished light. Mags wanted to shout, I don't understand. It. But she did understand it. On the surface, it didn't make any sense. But in the weird calculus of the apocalypse, it somehow did. Survivors showed up at the gate with a 10,000-yard stare from hollow eyes. They were thrust from living in the dirt, eating bugs, to three meals a day, showers, and a clean bed. It was too strong a dose for them. She had seen similar stares in the eyes of kids returning from desert patrols when she was deployed. It was the same for these survivors. The shift from the chaos outside the walls to the normalcy of the D.C. was too much of a shock to their system. As she returned to her paperwork, Mags made a mental note to strategize how to do a better job of acclimating the new arrivals. She pushed her hair back and tried to focus. She looked at the few strands of gray that clung to her fingers. In the old world, that would have bothered her, but not now. Maybe if she kept working and building, they would someday get back to the point where people would give a 
damn about gray hair. But now she had to get the next week's schedule out so everyone would know the responsibilities and the work would get done. She could use Brad's computers, but liked writing it out by hand so that she could hang it on the cafeteria bulletin board. There was a solidity and comfort to pen and paper that she needed that helped her feel grounded. She worked in the shipping manager's office. It was a small room filled with folding tables that sagged under the weight of paper stacks and crowded around her small metal desk. There was a lingering smell of gasoline and stale cigarette smoke. Mag sighed. She seemed to be spending more time here recently since taking over from Tasker. Tasker. In the end, they all knew that he wasn't fit to lead or to rebuild. Everyone could see it except him. Her assumption of leadership was all above board, even as he screamed and ranted about a coup and about being unlawfully removed. The survivors spoke with their votes and voices for mags. She proved herself in the confrontation with Harlan and the king's men. She earned their trust, that same trust that Tasker had squandered. In the great American tradition of meritocracy triumphing over nepotism and appointment, she and Michael took control and now frantically tried to get things back on track. It was hard work, but it was worthy work, and she was fully committed to this effort and to this community. There was so much to do. Everything needed to be done yesterday. Everything was urgent, and everything was a priority. She felt responsible for getting it all done. She knew that her commitment and discipline were all that stood between this growing community and the dead world outside the walls. Of course, she had people to work with, good people, more were showing up every day. At the last count, they were over 200 souls. Delegating was the hardest part of the job, trusting people to take responsibility and work toward a common future. She had to delegate. She couldn't be everywhere. So she delegated and crossed her fingers. Wasn't that the definition of leadership. She wished the old man and Janet had stuck around for a few more weeks or months. They would have helped with the sick and given people confidence, helped her get this community established, helped run the little town that was emerging from the distribution center. But Mags understood. He had his mission. He had to find out about his son. And Janet and the dog felt compelled to go with him. They would stick together. There was something about those three. A strange little family unit that only the forces of the apocalypse could mold. She couldn't force them to stay. She knew that she couldn't force 
anyone to do anything. She could only lead. She could only motivate and convince them to want to help. It was exhausting, and she was spread thin, but they were making progress. What was it that her husband used to say? One percent a day is a 365% improvement in a year. She felt a momentary ache as she thought of her husband. He had a great sense of humor. She missed him. She'd much rather remember the humor in his laughing eyes than the picture of him dead from the virus, covered in his own filth on the floor of their house. The initial group of people from the D.C. were all taking on new roles. Michael had stepped up and become her second-in-command. He had quickly seen that she was a better leader than Tasker and had been working hard to make things better with her in charge. They agreed that security needed to be shored up, and she delegated that mission to him. He was becoming a sort of proto-sheriff for their emerging town. She was confident in his abilities and his willingness to ask for help when he needed it. They worked well together. With her guidance, he was making great strides training his security team to maintain order and safety in their community. One less thing to worry about. Brad was growing into his new role, too. Took to it like a fish to water. Brad was now their manager of supply chain and logistics. He was actually managing a staff of his own. They were taking inventory of everything in the D.C. and then determining the most efficient and effective way to get people what they needed when they needed it. The inventory in the distribution center was their bulwark against a chaos outside the fence. It was a precious seed for rebirth. Mags also delegated a committee that triaged and settled newcomers. Every week, more survivors arrived. They trickled in by ones and twos, but mostly in ragged small groups looking for refuge. Somehow, the word was spreading that there was an oasis of normalcy in the sea of chaos. But that also added to the urgency of security. If these survivors knew about the D.C., then the King or some other gang of desperados wouldn't be far behind, bent on testing the will of their little town with violence. The large cache of supplies would be too big a prize to resist. Becca oversaw triage and sorting the newcomers as they arrived. An area was sectioned off for quarantine. She was doing a great job, too, in a very trying role. Who would have thought the lunch lady would make a competent administrator? Becca had a way of really seeing people and knowing what they needed when they came to her. 
Maybe that was a built-in superpower of lunch ladies all over the world and throughout history. It was funny how people stepped up and grew into the roles once you let them. Willie had embraced a different role and was succeeding despite her lone wolf attitude or maybe because of it. She was scouting the surrounding areas. She went out with a crew and cataloged what they found. They made a note of useful material. They directed stragglers to the D.C. They brought back supplies. Mags had taught Willie how to drive. That was an adventure, teaching a city kid how to drive. But Willie took to it quickly, and besides, there weren't any traffic jams or road rage drivers to worry about now. Willie didn't much like hanging around the D.C. She didn't like crowds. She was uniquely suited to exploring the outskirts. She was tough. She liked to be out in the wild. She was wily like a lynx or a panther, great at moving around the fringes, unseen, and just a bit dangerous. She was perfect for the outside crew. Mags had good people, and that was what would shift the balance towards normalcy and rebuilding more than anything else. Mags reached under the dusty green lampshade and felt for the switch. It was time for bed. There was no more she could do here, and she had to meet Michael early for the rounds. With a metallic click, her day came to an end, and maybe, just maybe, she had made just a little bit of progress pulling the world back from the brink. The sun was rising bright and strong. A slight breeze ruffled the stars and stripes of the flag in the courtyard. Michael strode up and down in front of uniformed men and women at attention. He had close to fifty now. They called themselves a militia, but they were more like a police force than an army. With the uniforms Brad found, at least they looked like an official force. Michael had been working with mags to build up the defenses. The king was out there. Chaos was out there. They needed to be ready. Mags was a solid manager and a good leader. She had experience in building defensible bases. She was a breath of fresh air compared to Tasker. Tasker wasn't an evil man, but he was a power-hungry blowhard and incompetent, and he didn't know his own limits. They should have been preparing for the worst instead of telling fairy tales about the past. They needed to defend and preserve this bastion of civilization against the chaos outside the fence. Michael was betting that a violent storm was coming, and they didn't have time to waste on Tasker's lack of self-awareness. 
The first project Michael tackled was to harden the defensive perimeter of the D.C. campus. They dragged empty shipping containers into a large ring around the whole yard. It was the old man who suggested they place them in a zigzag pattern like an old star fort. Fields of fire, he said. They positioned pickets out on the road for early warning. Mag showed him how to put sentries on the walls and how to have internal lines so that they could rapidly move forces from one part of the wall to another to concentrate fire. If it came to a fight, at least they wouldn't be taken by surprise. He looked at his company. These people weren't soldiers. They were citizens. He might be able to craft them into citizen soldiers like the army crafted him. Maybe, with defenses in place, even a small volunteer force like this might be able to hold off a more substantial foe. Unless that other force showed up with heavy weapons, tanks, or aircraft, Michael didn't have time for those kinds of what-ifs. One thing at a time. After the basic defenses were in place and manned, they could think about hardening. Mags had suggested finding the local National Guard base and getting some fifty caliber machine guns for the hard points on the wall. That would make them a tough nut to crack. Michael turned to face the flag. He nodded at Sergeant Crane, who used to be a dispatcher of garbage truck drivers in the old world. Now he was Michael's second-in-command. The sergeant switched on a speaker, and a recording of the national anthem began to play. It might seem silly, but effective units needed ritual, and this was part of their daily ritual. It was akin to kids reciting the Pledge of Allegiance in school. It would help build cohesion, the bond of a common purpose. Loyalty to the cause, fighting for their home, fighting for each other, fighting for something bigger than themselves. When the recording stopped, Michael saluted the flag and turned to address the assembled team. Okay, people, look sharp today, he announced firmly. He turned to Crane and said, Sergeant, make sure every new recruit is paired up with a veteran. Then he announced generally in a loud voice, Spread out to the post, two-hour shifts, let's go. It sounded good, but he felt like he was play-acting. He and Mags were making stuff up as they went along. They created ranks and organization. They tried to build esprit de corps. They would see if it was enough when the time came. Would they be ready when chaos came knocking on their gate? There was no doubt that their community would be a target. Only by being strong and working together could they protect and build back what they had lost. It was mid-morning as Mags and Michael walked from the commissary to the detention block. She sipped her coffee and savored the hot, life-affirming liquid in her mouth for a second before swallowing. Thank God for coffee. 
She hadn't got much sleep again. Part of it was having too much to do. Part of it was worrying about it all. It kept her awake at night, regardless of how late she stayed up working in her office. She would stare at the ceiling as her mind played an infinite game of Tetris, trying to fit all the pieces into place. Mags knew that she needed to get out of the office, get some sun, talk to the people, do some physical work, and get some exercise. She smiled at this as her brain started searching its scheduling algorithms for a free hour to get out and work with the crews. Mags made a mental note to have Becca be on the lookout for someone with executive assistant skills in the incoming survivor pool. She took another swig of coffee and made a few quick strides to catch up with Michael. Thank God for Michael. Coffee and Michael. How are the new recruits? She asked. It's hard to tell, he said thoughtfully. The new ones all have some level of shell shock. I'm pairing them up with the veterans. That way, we can get some sense of what they're like during the first few days. I'm not giving them weapons or any critical duty until we get a sense. I've got the sergeant briefing me weekly. He looked at her and smiled. Don't worry. We've got to work with what we've got, right? Didn't Schwarzkopf say that in the Gulf? You go to war with the army you have? Mags responded. I think that was Rumsfeld. She paused. Then spoke again. Too bad the old man isn't here. I bet he'd know. Michael nodded. As they walked, they could see where Tasker had built the stocks. They were gone now. Mags had decided early on that that medieval punishment was a bad idea. If they were going to build back, that was a poor place to start. Instead, they were trying to instill a rudimentary system of law and order. They held a weekly town meeting, and Mags had formed a simple judiciary committee to hear complaints. If someone was found irredeemable, they were asked to leave. Luckily, they hadn't had any major problems or scuffles. The people who stayed were glad to be here and tended to pull together. She knew that eventually they would have to deal with something hard, like a rape or a murder. She prayed they would be unified and organized when that happened. That would be the only way they would be able to handle it. Rebuilding a civilization was hard. They arrived at the detention center as Mag swigged the last of her coffee. Michael pulled out his oversized key ring and unlocked the door. Let's go see how our friends are doing. Michael didn't say what he was really thinking. They should have executed Harlan the first day and been done with it. But Mags wouldn't have it. Instead, they had locked them up. They locked up Tasker, too, when he wouldn't step down. Michael thought... Things would be simpler if Tasker was gone, too. But Mags was an idealist. 
Michael didn't see what was to be gained by keeping these men alive. Even locked up, they were a threat to everything he and Mags were trying to build here. A cancer inside the fence. The detention cells were not much. They were repurposed secure inventory cages. In the old days, distribution centers that held valuable or restricted goods like precious metals or potentially addictive pharmaceuticals needed a place to keep this inventory secure. That was achieved with lockable mesh wire, floor-to-ceiling cages built into the warehouse, a secure area within the warehouse proper that was under lock and key so the goods could not be stolen. This was where their guests were housed now. Harlan sat on a cot in the cage, reading a book. "'Morning, Harlan,' said Mags. "'How are you getting on?' Harlan looked up from his book and smiled that rat Face grin of his that made Mags's skin crawl. A fine morning to you, warden. Any mail for me? I'm expecting something. He winked. No, no. I'm afraid the mail's a little slow these days. Is there anything else I can get for you? Yeah. Harlan held his smile. Beer, cigarettes, and women. Not necessarily in that order. How about some more rich crackers? That's not much of a substitute, he replied and shifted the topic. Can I get out of here for a few hours a day? I'm willing to work just sitting here. I'm getting soft. Sorry, Harlan, I don't trust you, especially with your boss still out there. We just can't risk it. Well, I'll just stay here and continue turning into a mushroom. Harlan said with only a hint of frustration in his drawling voice. Something tells me this isn't your first experience with detention, Harlan. That it is not, he agreed. Just don't cause any trouble, and eventually we'll figure something out. Harlan grunted something unrecognizable and went back to his book. Mags and Michael moved on to the next guest in a cage— Tasker. Tasker had heard them coming and was standing at the side of the cage with a wild look in his eye. I demand y'all let me out of here. You've got no right to keep me locked up. This is my center. I'm legally in charge. Calm down, Mag said as soothingly as she could. We've had this conversation too many times, John. You're not the man for the job. Don't make it worse by belly aching. Tasker took a few deep breaths and appeared to bring his emotions in check. After a few moments' pause, he spoke in a more rational tone. You're right, of course. Let me out and I can help. I'll work with you. I can be one of your directors. Please! Mags looked at Michael, who looked at his feet. This was uncomfortable. Listen, John, we all think it's safer for you to stay out of the way for a while. I know it's hard for you, but we've made the decision, and we're going to stick with it. Is there anything I can do to convince you to let me out? His tone shifted from rational to a simpering whine. No. 
Mag said flatly and held his gaze without emotion. Is there anything else we can get for you to make you more comfortable? No, nothing. I just want to get out. He was frantic and frothing again. I'm no criminal. You have no right. Let me out now or you'll be sorry. Mag shook her head and turned away. She and Michael left the way they had come. They had other things, an endless list of other things to attend to. After he was sure they had left, Harlan returned to working on the wires of the cage near the floor where they attached to the cage rails. He knew if he wiggled the wire long enough, it would break. Once he got one loose, the rest would be easier. Hey, Tasker! Harlan sang out. How about we kill that bitch? One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, my survivor friends. And welcome back to After the Apocalypse, the podcast. This is Chris, your host. And I wanted to give a shout-out of appreciation to a couple of new subscribers. Mark Davies from the UK signed up on our Patreon page. And John Harris from Kentucky signed up for the ACAST Plus option, where you get the episodes ad-free and a week before everybody else. And there's access to unique member content. I will tell you a funny story. A Patreon story. I was listening to a webinar from Patreon this week <laughs> at lunch when I was walking the dog. Yeah, they had a couple of big wig industry insiders. They were they were answering questions about podcasting because podcasting is a big deal these days. Not like when I started back in the day when the dinosaurs roamed the earth. One of the questions from the audience was something like, how do audio fiction podcasts get more listeners and, and more revenue? 
And the bigwig's answer was basically, audio fiction doesn't make any money for anybody. (laughs) If you're doing it for some other reason than love, you're in trouble. (laughs) Well then, thanks for crushing our dreams, Mr. Hollywood. Lucky for you folks, I'm in it for love, but... I still need to not lose too much money in the process, so any support you can give helps. Season 3, Episode 7. Yeah, we are almost halfway into our five-season run. How about that? Who would have thought? This episode, well, I liked it, and I will tell you why. When I first wrote this episode, it was awful. It was boring. It had no stakes. But that's how my process works sometimes, and I would venture that's how most creative people's processes work. I had plenty of words on the page, but it all just sounded like wah, 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 wah when I read it. So I rallied my editors. I actually got them on a call, and we talked through it. And I removed two whole scenes and rewrote the rest of the the podcast the rest of this episode and I added lots of what I call I like to call music the way the words sound and I added overarching stakes like the normalcy of what's going on inside the DC what they're trying to build versus the encroaching chaos of the apocalypse anyhow I was really pleased with the final draft so uh, you know if I apply the inverse rule of creations You probably hated it. (laughs) That's what I find. You know, the more I love something, the more other people are like, meh. And if I just kick something out off the top of my head, they're like, this is great. So you never know. It's not in our place as creators to know. It is our job to produce. It is uh, the listener's job to consume. And appreciate or not, ah, well, we try. The lesson here for you creatives... Or one of the lessons is, don't dismiss the value of that first awful draft. We would all like our brilliance to spring forth fully formed on the page like the Lady of the Lake, but sometimes you have to write that dud first and go from there. So I've got another story, potentially spooky, spooky story about episode 6 that did drop right around Halloween in 2022 for you time travelers. So, spooky story. Do you remember the scene in episode 6 where Zane is flashing back? He's remembering back to the old wooden roller coaster in the old amusement park where he worked as a kid. Remember that scene? Well, that scene and that coaster were based on a very real amusement park where near where I grew up. And it was named Wellam Park. And the old coaster was the Flying Comet. And one of my editors, Dave, he worked there as a kid growing up. He worked at Willem Park. And the way we describe it in that episode as an, the apocalyptic nature of the park and the terrifying old wooden roller coaster, it's absolutely true. It's spot on. But that's not the spooky part. The spooky part is I received a package from my sister this past week for my birthday. And she sent me a couple of books, but also tucked inside was a picture of the old coaster at Whalem Park with a write-up 
of how the same company that made that uh, made another one, a famous wooden roller coaster on Coney Island, I think, is where it was. And so I'm thinking to myself, how did she listen to my show? Because it just released, you know, she she had to have sent this before I released it. So not to jump the gun, I sort of texted to her nonchalantly, hey, what's with the Willem Park pictures? To which she replied, well, I just thought it was a cool memory, just random. And then I filled her in on the connection, yeah, about how I had just written about this and all the... Uh, the connections there. So there you go. We think the universe is random, but it is not random. It is just chaotic and beyond our comprehension. And with that, my friends, I could tell another story. I could tell stories all night, but I will save it for another day. I did finish Alas Babylon, the nuclear apocalypse novel from 1959, and I enjoyed it. It is a product of its time when they thought people would actually survive a nuclear war. Um, It was described to me as a slow burn, and I can see that as a good description. It has a lot of what we have come to expect from apocalyptic fiction, like how the survivors figure out how to live after all the modern conveniences are removed. You know, in that way, it cuts closely to the science fiction of the 1950s, where resourceful men figure things out and meet challenges with basic engineering skills. It also is, in its way, racially progressive for its time, and it also makes an attempt to give women some power, which was progressive for the time, uh, in a weird 1950s housewifey kind of way. So I appreciate that. I'm surprised it never got made into a movie. It got made into a radio drama, but not into a movie. It has a good three-act storyline structure, and it has a pretty good resolution. I was looking forward to reading it every night, right? As I got into the latter part of the book, I was looking forward to reading it. And I would have appreciated another couple hundred pages. I could have stayed with it. So, Alas Babylon. Good read. You can, you can go read that. Well, my friends, now is when I need to escort you to the shelter exit and kick you back out into the apocalypse of the real world for a couple more weeks. Sign up on ACAST Plus or on Patreon to support the show. Links are in the show notes. I will send you an after-the-apocalypse patch. I've got a stack of patches that Walter sent me. If you want to just buy one outright, fine, just shoot me a note and we can uh, we can handle that the facebook group is approaching close to 250 lost and truly disturbing members come on over and join by searching for old man apocalypse on facebook if you are looking for cool holiday presents go visit our tea public store And finally, did you get a chance to go look at the new website I'm creating at oldmanapocalypse.com? Well, if you haven't, stop by and give me some feedback as I build that out. All of these links to all of these wonderful treasures are in the show notes. Peace to you, my survivor friends, and remember to keep surviving. up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 